Uh, good morning. In the minute that, gave, that Rich gave us to greet one another, okay, you probably did notice that none of the pastors are here today. So I was joking that we could you know, do whatever we wanted this morning. Okay? Okay. So next week, when you see one of the pastors here, or during the week, next time you see one of our pastors, just go up to him and say, Man, that was a great idea of Scott's to not have a sermon at all, but just open the mic up for anybody to share what God had laid on their hearts today. Tell them you'd kind of like to be Redeemer Fellowship brethren someday and just have everybody available. Uh, Rich, Rich mentioned the third string this morning being up here. I think he was referencing me because I'm certain he wasn't referencing uh, the worship team. Tara, thank you so much for what you've done the last two weeks. When you see Eric Bergstrom, yeah, when you see Eric Bergstrom, tell him he's out of a job. Uh, no, it's, uh, thank you so much for, oh, thanks for all you've done. Worship team last week, those who participated this week, it's, it's been wonderful. With Eric's permission, I actually uh, am going to rag on him just a little bit at the beginning of my message this morning, even though he's not here to defend himself, I guess we could ask the question, how do you know when your pastor's about to go on sabbatical? Might it be that he considers a preaching series on Genesis to be sermons on chapters 1 to 24, a sermon on 32, then 49 and 50? Wow, what a, what a series this has been. We are jumping up all the way to chapter 49 today. We are skipping over many, many chapters. So in some ways, uh, I feel like today I'm going to be preaching on the chapters we missed. And because our chapter 49 is Jacob or prophesying about what's going to come in the future, we're going to look ahead to some of the things that are happening. I feel a little bit like I'm preaching on the entire New Testament this morning, but let's see how that uh, works out. Anyway, I've been blessed by our series in Genesis we are concluding these last two weeks with my preaching of chapter 49 today, and Andy will be preaching on chapter 50 next week. So I've, been, I've entitled chapter 49, The Last Words of Jacob and Israel. So let's go back to chapter 49, and I'd like to read verses 1 to 2, and then 28 to 33 to begin. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And then over to verse 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, 
He drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So since we have skipped so many chapters, I'd like to begin this morning by reviewing the life of this man, a man with two names, each of which is an apt description of who he was as a person. Notice that he uses both of his names in chapter two, or I'm sorry, in verse two, where he says, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. And he also refers to himself by both names in verse seven. So first of all, let's consider who is Jacob. We read of his birth in Genesis chapter 25. So his story covers almost half of the book of Genesis. When he was born, he was the younger of twins, his older brother being Esau. And when they were born, he came out having grabbed hold of the heel of his older brother Esau. So he was given the name, he who grasps by the heel. Now, to us, in our culture, that means absolutely nothing. But in their culture, one who grasped by the heel was one who deceived or cheated. So Jacob means cheater. Now, in that day, names also had much more significance than they do in our day as well. We name our children things that sound good. Katie Beth, Hannah Florence, Florence being Debbie's grandmother. Uh, They don't really have all that much significance for us in our day. And of course, you know that names in the Bible were meant to speak of someone's character. So maybe you were introducing yourself to friends this morning. Maybe you saw someone who's brand new today, walked up to say, hey, my name's Scott, what's your name? That would be very much a surprise to have them say, my name's Cheater. But that's what's going on here with Jacob. His name means cheater. His name means deceiver. And unfortunately, when we continue reading about him in Genesis, we see how appropriate his name actually turns out to be. After reading of his birth in chapter 25, the first thing we read about him is how he cheated his brother Esau out of his birthright, getting him to sell it to him on the cheap at a moment of physical exhaustion. He not only cheated Esau out of his birthright, he cheated him out of his blessing by pretending to be Esau when his father was old and could barely see anymore. The second deception was aided by his mother, Rebecca, because Jacob was her favorite. Now these events naturally led to family strife and Jacob And Jacob was sent to Laban, his uncle, to avoid his brother's revenge because Esau, we're told, hated Jacob and promised to kill him as soon as his father Isaac died. So Jacob is sent to Laban for his own safety and also to make sure he does not marry a Canaanite woman as Esau had done. Jacob quickly falls in love with Laban's daughter Rachel. They say what goes around comes around, and Jacob gets a taste of deception when Laban gives him his older daughter Leah in marriage instead of Rachel. He then gives Jacob Rachel as well, but not before getting Jacob to promise 
to work for him for seven more years. At this point in his life, Jacob begins a family. Now, Eric entitled a recent sermon, and it's still up there, God's Dysfunctional Family Tree. And the story of how Jacob fathered 12 sons, who eventually became the 12 tribes, is extremely dysfunctional. What we are told is that God opened the womb of Leah since she was hated. It seems already there's far too much of that hatred going on in this family. But Leah feels hated and God opens her womb as a blessing to her and Leah bears Jacob his first four sons. When Rachel sees that she's barren and is not conceiving, she gives Jacob her servant Bilhah and she bears Jacob's sons five and six. Leah then becomes jealous and gives Jacob her servant, Zilpah, who bears Jacob's sons seven and eight. Leah, in her jealousy, then buys Jacob's favor with mandrake flowers and bears Jacob's sons nine and ten, as well as a daughter, Dinah. Finally, God opened Rachel's womb, and she bore Jacob's son number 11, Joseph, who became Jacob's favorite. All of this occurs in Genesis 29 and 30. Rachel gives Jacob one final son in chapter 35, but she dies, giving birth to Benjamin. The 12 sons who gather in Genesis 49 to hear their final words became his 12 sons through a bizarre competition between his wives and their servants. During these years of family growth, Jacob is also becoming wealthy in flocks and herds, partly at his uncle Laban's expense. And before long, he's worn out his welcome at uncle Laban's and is running from Laban as well as Esau. Now eventually, he reconciles with both Laban and Esau, and the narrative of Scripture then turns to telling us about Jacob's sons. To say the dysfunction continues would be an understatement, as we shall see when we consider Jacob's words to his first four sons. Jacob is the source of strife amongst his children. When he repeats the errors of his parents and drives a wedge between his sons by playing favorites. I hope you know the story of Jacob giving Joseph his famous coat of many colors. And I hope you know that that coat of many colors, which Joseph wore every single day, was basically this neon sign announcing, I am dad's favorite. And every time his brothers saw him in that coat of many colors, they were reminded that Jacob did love Joseph best. So one day, as they see Joseph coming, they decide to kill him. Their hatred had grown to the point where they just want to take his life, but instead a group of travelers comes by on their way to Egypt, and they decide to sell Joseph to them. He's carried away, seemingly never to return. Now next week, Andy will be sharing more with us about the life of Joseph. 
But they take, his brothers then take his special coat, they rip it, they cover it in blood, they take it to their father, and in a piece of deception of their own, basically imply that, hey, dad, Joseph must have been killed by wild animals. And because of this, it appears that Jacob would live out his days in grief and mourning at the loss of his beloved son. Now, this is obviously not the end of story of the story. And in fact, what I've given you so far is only part of the truth about this man's life. Because Jacob had another name, Israel. And this name reminds us that God loved Jacob. In Romans 9, we're told that before he was born, before he had done anything good or evil, God set his love on this man, Jacob. Now, God did this not because of anything that Jacob did or that Jacob would do, for we've already seen that Jacob's life was not exactly one which would have deserved or earned God's love. God loved Jacob because God is gracious. And God is faithful to all his covenant promises. And God was determined to bring about his plan through this man and his offspring. Now let me pause for a moment and make a very brief early application to our lives. There has never been a single human being that God has set his love on because they were deserving of his love. Every one of us has sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can say in our hearts, well, of course God loves me. God's love is always a gracious love, which means it is always undeserved. God describes himself to Moses in Exodus 34 as a merciful and gracious God, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Surely this is the kind of God we see intervening in Jacob's life. We see God's love for Jacob in chapter 28, when Jacob is fleeing from Esau and on his way to live with Laban. God comes to, J to Jacob in a dream. In this dream, God promises to give Jacob the very land on which he's sleeping. He also promises to make Jacob's off offspring like the dust of the earth. And he repeats the promise that through his offspring, all the families on the earth are going to be blessed. He promises Jacob that his presence will be with him and that he will keep all his promises to him. So Jacob wakes up and he calls the place Bethel, house of God. In chapter 32, when Jacob is living in fear because of the report that Esau is headed his way, God appears to Jacob again 
in the form of a man. Jacob wrestles with God all night and will not let him go until he receives his blessing. It's at this time that God changes his name to Israel, which means he strives with God, for he had wrestled with God and prevailed. Israel named that place Peniel, for he said, I have seen the face of God and lived. In chapter 35, God appears to Jacob twice. On the first occasion, he tells him to go live in Bethel, where he first appeared to him. And on the second occasion, God repeats this call for Jacob to become Israel, promising him that nations will come from his offspring and kings from his own body. God renews his promise to give him the land that he had promised him, the land promised to Isaac, his father, and Abraham, his grandfather. And throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself amazingly as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I hope that many of the details of Jacob's life that I've just recounted are familiar to you through your own reading and study of the Bible. If they're not, may I strongly suggest that you commit yourself to reading the book of Genesis starting today? When Jacob appears before Pharaoh in Genesis 47, he describes his life in this way. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Jacob was a man who knew much sorrow in his life. Sorrow for his own sins. Sorrow for the sins of his family. Deep sorrow over the loss of a beloved son. But Israel knew tremendous blessing. The blessing of being loved by God. So let me finish the story of his life by reminding you how God kept his promises to Jacob. God said that all the world would be blessed through Jacob's offspring. Now this promise has several layers of fulfillment with Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment. But even during the days of Jacob's life, this promise was fulfilled in his sight. His son Joseph, who he thought had died, was in fact alive and Joseph's wisdom in storing up grain in advance of a prophesied famine was a blessing to all the surrounding nations. This was the reason that Jacob's sons came to Egypt in the first place, right? To buy grain. Joseph's wisdom in storing up grain was a blessing to the world and saved countless thousands of lives by providing them with food when there would not have been any to be found. Another promise that God would soon fulfill was the promise to make Jacob's offspring numerous. When he went to Egypt, Jacob's family numbered 70. By the time the Israelites leave Egypt after the great plagues at the time of the Exodus, estimates put their population at close to two million. 
God always keeps his promises. The second thing I'd like to look at today is not just who is this man, Jacob, in Israel, but let's take a look a little bit now in chapter 49 at his last words. Now, I don't think that time will allow us to talk about all his last words, so I'd like to talk to you this morning about Jacob's words to his first four sons in verses 3 through 12. There are 26 verses in which Jacob blesses his sons. Blessing might be a little too narrow a term for the words that he speaks since uh, Jacob's words to some of his sons are not blessing at all. In essence, Jacob takes up the role of a prophet and he speaks the words of God to his sons. Verse 28 tells us every son receives the blessing suitable to him or I like to say the words suitable to them. Again, we don't have time to look at them all. 10 of the 26 verses focus on Judah and Joseph. But I'd like to look at verses 3 through 12, focusing on Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. So let's go back to verse 3. And look at verses 3 through 7, Jacob's words to Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstborn of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are in their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob. And scatter them in Israel. Jacob's words to Reuben, Simeon, and Levi in verse 3 through 7 are not really blessing at all, but words denouncing their sin and exacting justice upon them for their sin. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. He's called by Jacob, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and power. This sounds pretty good. As the firstborn in these ancient cultures, was considered the pride and joy of his parents. And the firstborn would often receive either the bulk or the entirety of his parents' property and goods upon their death. But Jacob's words turned to curses as he calls Reuben unstable as water and takes away from him any preeminence he might have had the right to because he was the firstborn. He reminds Reuben that this curse is just. Since in chapter 35, after the death of Rachel, Reuben slept with Bilhah, the mother of two of his brothers and Jacob's concubine. Because of this great sin, he loses the rights of the firstborn. And when the tribe of Reuben settles on the east side of the Jordan, when the promised land is conquered, 
they essentially disappear from history. No prophet, no judge, no king ever comes from the line of Reuben. And we basically never hear mention of them again in the rest of the Old Testament. Next in line were Simeon and Levi. They might have expected that leadership would fall to them after the rejection of Reuben, but they too are disqualified because of their sin. Jacob calls them weapons of violence, and they are cursed because of their anger. This takes us back to Genesis 34. In this chapter, their sister Dinah is defiled by a young man named Shechem. Shechem and his father Hamor asked Jacob to give Dinah to be Shechem's bride. They invite them to be a part of the land, to trade with them, to intermarry with them. But Jacob's sons hatch a plot, a deceitful plot, to get all the men of the city to circumcise themselves, seemingly so that they can intermingle with the Israelites. While the men are still in pain, Simeon and Levi come to the city, kill all the men of the city, and they and their brothers plunder the city, taking the women, children, and wealth for themselves. Jacob curses them for their anger and the violence they brought to their city. Their massacre of the people of Shechem was not justice, but angry vengeance. Jacob's words to them are, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. When the 12 tribes finally reached the promised land, the tribe of Simeon, like Reuben, basically disappears. They receive property, but within the boundaries of the tribe of Judah. Now, the tribe of Levi is eventually exalted and given responsibility, the responsibilities of the priesthood. And as such, they are literally scattered among all the other tribes. As the tribe of Levi inherits 48 cities distributed throughout all of the tribal areas. I'd like to finish today by focusing on Jacob's words to Judah in verses 8 to 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, I must confess that a lot of these blessings are given in very ancient cultural words that don't mean a lot to us, but let me try to share with you the main blessings, and I do mean blessings, poured out on this son 
Judah. So our focus here on Judah, he receives a long positive blessing from Jacob, who begins the blessing with a play on words. See, the name Judah means praise. So Jacob says, your brothers shall praise you. Now, as we begin looking out, looking at Judah, I want to remind you again of God's grace. Judah does not receive a wonderful blessing because he was sinless. It's not that, finally, we've come to a son of Jacob who has no skeletons in his closet, to use a cliche. No, this was not true. In Genesis 38, we read of Judah's sin with Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Judah's oldest son, Tamar's husband, was responsible for great wickedness And so we're told the Lord put him to death. Judah's second son was then responsible to give Tamar children in memory of his older brother. But his second son was also put to death by the Lord for being wicked. So Tamar takes matters into her own hand, dresses like a prostitute, and is hired by Judah who unknowingly fathers a child with her. When he finds out he is the father of the child, he realizes that he had not fulfilled his promise to her, and Judah exclaims, she is more righteous than I. This incident seemed to bring Judah to a deep humiliation and repentant spirit not found in his brother's. This character is later seen in Genesis chapter 44 when Judah pleads before Joseph for the life of his brother Benjamin and even offers himself as Benjamin's substitute, foreshadowing the work of Jesus. The blessings poured out on Judah were just as much a function of God's gracious love as any blessing given to Jacob. God again chooses Judah for blessing in spite of his sin. Judah would receive praise from his brothers. They would bow down before him. Now, that should ring a bell. Brothers bowing down was the part of Joseph's dream that his brothers hated the most. Yet when they came to Egypt, the dream of Joseph became reality. It is now prophesied about Judah that his brothers would bow before him, that Judah would in the future assume a leadership position amongst the 12 tribes. The tribe of Judah would become like a lion, which becomes a recurring theme throughout the Bible. This theme is found in Numbers 24, Ezekiel 19, Micah 5 in the Old Testament, and of course in the book of Revelation, where we see the culmination of this messianic title. The next promise is that the kingly line would come through Judah, Jacob says the scepter will not depart from Judah. The last phrase of verse 10 has a number of translation options, but everyone agrees on the meaning. The kingly line would run through Judah until Messiah comes, the king of all kings. The scepter will not depart from Judah until the lion comes, and during his reign, wine will be as common 
as water. Now we need to remember that the sons of Jacob, hearing these words, did not have the rest of the Bible like you and I do. They would not have known about any Messiah. They would not have known anything about a king. They didn't even know at this point that they would be their own nation. All they had were promises. Promises from a God who always keeps them. So let me take you through a little bit of history here that follows Genesis 49 to show you how the prophecy given to Judah came to fruition. The Israelites would have eventually come to be very numerous, fulfilling God's promise to the patriarchs. When God brought them out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus, the Israelites marched to Sinai where God gave them the law. But at Sinai, God also arranged them in their camp as an army. And the tribe of Judah was given the prime position in the camp. And when the people marched from place to place, Judah led the way. Eventually, the people made their way to the promised land, fulfilling another promise to the patriarchs. And when the Israelites came to the land, they eventually wanted a king. So they chose Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. This worked out very poorly for them because Saul looked the part of a king, but his heart was not fully devoted to God. So Samuel was sent to anoint the real king. He was sent to Bethlehem in the tribe of Judah. And David becomes the fulfillment of the promise to Judah when he becomes king. During David's reign, God spoke to David and gave him an extension of the promise to Judah, telling David he would always have a descendant on the throne. Of course, I hope you know that after Solomon's reign, the, nations were sp- the nation of Israel was split into two nations, with the ten tribes in the north called Israel and the two tribes in the south called Judah. The kings of Israel were one disaster followed by another, But Judah had both good and bad kings. The northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah lasted a while longer until being conquered by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. And just when it looked like God's promise would never come true, God raised up a courageous woman named Esther to save his people from extinction. They would eventually be allowed to resettle the land. And after the 400 years between the Testaments, the prophecy was fulfilled again by a baby born in Bethlehem in the land of Judah. The New Testament begins in Matthew 1 with a genealogy because God wants us to know That Jesus was the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, the son of Judah, and the son of David. The king of kings had come to earth, fulfilling all the promises to the patriarchs. Just as God used Jacob's beloved son Joseph to bless the Middle Eastern world with grain, so it was that God would now use his beloved son Jesus to bring blessing to every nation. Now in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is given a vision of the beauty of the throne room in heaven. 
At the right hand of God, there's one seated on a throne with a scroll representing God's purposes for history, especially his redemptive purposes for the salvation of mankind. The scroll awaits someone worthy enough to open it and to execute God's plan, but no one is found worthy. So John begins to weep. God has a plan to save mankind, but no one's worthy to take the scroll and execute the plan. And then it happens. One of the elders tells John to weep no more because someone has been found who is worthy. You know who that someone was? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered And when John looks to see this lion, he beholds a lamb standing as though it's been slain, coming forward to take the scroll. This begins one of the greatest scenes of worship found anywhere in the Bible. As the creatures of heaven sing this new song, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests, and they shall reign on the earth. And John looks and he hears the throne, around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the angels, myriads, thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is King Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the King of kings who will reign forever and ever. This is what Genesis 49 foreshadows. So I'd like to ask some questions as we close today. Do you know the blessing of being loved by the God of Jacob? If you do not, I encourage you to come to God this morning. For if God can love a sinner like Jacob, he can love you. Do you believe that God has purposed to do you good? God spoke his good purposes to Jacob. But you know, he's told us that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Do we believe him when he speaks this way to us? Do you believe that God can bring blessing even from the dark times in our lives? You know, Joseph was being a blessing to the world at the very time that Jacob thought he was dead and mourning his loss. Jesus was bringing blessing to the world through his death at the very time the disciples thought all hope had been lost. Do you believe that God can bring blessing even from the dark times? in our lives. Are you firmly convinced that every promise God has made to you is sure to come to pass?
Every promise he made to Jacob came true. The promise of many descendants, the promise of the promised land, the promise of a nation and kings to come from his offspring. Every part of the prophecy he made to Judah came true. Judah became the leading tribe of the Israelite nation. And the scepter is still in possession of one of his offspring, King Jesus. Are you firmly convinced that every promise God has made to you is sure to come to pass? And finally, do you understand that for anyone to be blessed by God, that blessing can only come through Jesus? May we leave here today praising the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is so rich and so full. There is so much there. Father, there's so much in this chapter that we never even were able to touch on. But I pray that the things that we're able to think about this morning would be an encouragement and a reminder to your people of your love for them, your purpose to bless them, and that all the promises you make to them are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for giving us your son. And truly, we are blessed because of him. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning that does not know the Lord Jesus, that you might work in their heart to even this morning bow before the one deserving of all praise. Thank you for this time together. Continue with us as we finish our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.